Greetings and salutations in the name of our Lord. Let me get my backdrop corrected here. There we go. There we are. And let me get my lights. Let's see, what's that? What's better? That? I will go with that. I'll go with that. All right. Hap, I hope you're having a wonderful, wonderful day. Um, this is going to be a really random wrap-up Saturday. Um, and it's going to be circling around a thought about how amazed I am at the preserving power of our God to preserve our faith and the scriptures. Um, one of the things that I have thought, hello, Henry. One of the things I've thought a lot about as I've really worked to get into the history and the culture of this of the first century where Christianity came to be. Um, and I am amazed more than ever now at how our faith has been preserved. Could you try again? <laughs> That's Siri on my iPad. Isn't that hilarious? Uh, I'm amazed at how things have been preserved. The scripture, the Bible, the New Testament, Old Testament. Um, I would be disheartened a little bit if I was living in the second, third, and fourth century knowing anything about how Christianity began. And I'm stunned that we have a viable form of our faith that's still with us today. That talks to me about the power of our God to preserve things. Here, bear with me. Um, all two of you who are probably listening, I have my friend Henry and... Uh, have such a huge audience with this pot, with this uh, Facebook Live thing. I think there's two or three of you that listen in that I know of. But anyway, back at it. In the beginning of uh, in the first century, the church, and we, I, you've heard me rehash this over and over again. The church is primarily a Jewish faith, a Jewish thing, a Jewish movement. Messiah was Jewish. The apostles were Jewish. And they primarily spoke to Jewish people, to a few Samaritans. But it's amazing to me that from the very beginning of time, God has always had room at his table for Gentiles. But in the beginning of the Christian church, it was primarily about Jews. And the Jews were to be the light of the world. The gospels had to come to them first. I get that. Then the gospel had to go out to the Gentiles. I get that. And then I started thinking about the logistical problems of going out to the Gentiles, especially to a Gentile world that had little to no knowledge of Jewish scripture, of the Torah, of the law, the prophets. Because the Torah, the law, and the prophets, they're the one they're the scriptures that contain the information about Messiah. Jesus spent a good part of his ministry 
explaining the truth of who he was through the lens of the what we would call the Old Testament. And when the church was first established at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, what did the apostles have to teach the believers from except the Old Testament? So how do you establish a church where its new converts don't know anything or next to nothing about your scriptures. That has fascinated me. And the fact that the faith would catch on so readily and so quickly amongst the people that didn't, from what I can understand, didn't have a great knowledge of the Torah, of the Jewish faith, of the Jewish religion, uh, the Jewish nation was considered a troublesome group of people by Rome. As we see by the time, I think, we're AD 65, when they destroyed the temple and destroyed Jerusalem and scattered the Jews and basically destroyed Israel and scattered the Jews literally around the world. And so I've always, I've just been curious about how that process could happen and yet we see time and again, especially in the last few chapters of Acts that we've been reading, where the Gentile world was very accepting of the apostles' message of Jesus Christ crucified, raised from the dead on the third day, dying for the sins of mankind. And this is a totally different religion than their Greco-Roman culture, which is very pantheistic where the gods are fickle and they trick us, they deceive us, they play with us, they toy with us, they come and live among us just to play games. And the Christian faith, this faith in Messiah was totally different and yet it was readily accepted by the Gentile populace. That tells me one thing, one, they were hungry for God. That they wanted a certain faith, a faith that is solid and has a strong foundation. There was nothing certain or solid about the pantheistic Roman, Greco-Roman uh, religions. Uh, there is nothing firm about the Greco-Roman faith. But there was a lot of stability and solidity in this new belief in Messiah, the Son of God. God became flesh, dwelling among us. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And we beheld Him. So, I am really, one of my little sidelines of study has been how, how did this new faith mesh with the Greco-Roman culture? Because it was becoming, the faith was becoming a lot more Gentile in its makeup. The church, I should say, was becoming much more Gentile in its makeup than Jewish. And as it moved away from 
a majority Jewish population, there would have to be changes, I would think, culturally. And I'm not wrong. Um, by the third century, the, the church, as it was recognized then, bore little to no resemblance to what was going on in the first century. And I'm not sure if that's good or bad. I think it's a combination of both. It became very a very political organization. Uh, the Roman Empire, Constantine, I think, was converted. And so he passed an edict that uh, made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, which ended several hundred years of persecution and death and destruction being uh, wreaked upon the Christian faith by the Romans. And you think, ah, that's a good thing. Well, yeah, it was. They were able to catch their breath, I guess. But then organizational things, the organizational aspect from the Greco-Roman culture started taking over. And what we see in the first century pretty much went away. What did we see in the first century? Well, people met from house to house. It was a very informal there wasn't a lot of structure. There were some deacons, yeah, for a little while, but then the deacons were scattered. It wasn't like they appointed deacons to in in uh, in Jerusalem, and then all of a sudden, every organization that started up had deacons. I don't, I don't, I don't see that happening. I did. I I don't see proof of that. Uh, the office of the deacons was invented, if you will. Uh, for the purpose of serving the um, Hellenistic widows. But eventually they became a permanent office, but I, I don't see that as being widespread in the first century. Um, it was a very informal thing. They met from house to house every day. They'd, they'd go to the synagogue or they, if they were in Jerusalem, they'd go to the temple courts and fellowship. They shared meals with each other. They shared possessions and money with each other. It was a very communal faith and in some ways very unstructured and loosey-goosey. Perhaps a lot of that was because in the beginning, as it was primarily of Jewish nature, things centered around the synagogue and the temple and organization was already in place. But... Uh, that's curious. That's something that I'm looking into now. I'm just, I'm curious about that. But as Gentiles made up a larger and larger portion of the new movement, their look and feel, the organizational, their, oh, for lack of a better word, corporate culture, I guess this would be today's buzzword, infiltrated the church. And the church started taking on a more, uh, started taking on more look and feel that reflected that Greco-Roman culture. Um, Greco-Roman culture, for instance, had associations. Uh, groups of people centered around a common theme or purpose. And there were customary uh aspects to these meetings of people that would get together, these associations. And that kind of blended into what became our church 
our church services today resemble more of the Greco-Roman association than they do of the Jewish services in the first part of the first century. So we see a lot of organizational things creeping in. Um, again, I'm not sure bad or good, but just different. And then some pretty bad things happened around the second and third century where government actually invented the structure for the church and the church and the government became one. It became a state religion. And so the church started taking on structural and organizational aspects of the Roman government. And that's where we the Roman Catholic Church came to be. You have popes, uh, cardinals, archbishops, bishops, etc. And that actually resembled the Roman government levels. So when the when Rome, the government fell and crumbled, as it did, I think uh, four or five hundred eighty, the church was actually able to step in and become a force of stability and familiarity for those people that were left high and dry by the collapse of the Roman government. Good and bad again. Good in the sense that elements of the Christian faith were preserved, but bad in the sense that now it made the church the governance, form of governance. And that's when we see a lot of the evil and a lot of the uh, atrocious acts perpetrated in the name of the church on different populations around the world. Uh, for a long time, the Pope was a very, was the most powerful political figure in the world. The Pope appointed and deposed kings, dukes, emperors, whatever. Uh, and in the midst of all this, with the church becoming overrun by the decadence and the evil and the wicked philosophy of the world, the scripture was still preserved. There were still true Christians in the middle of all of this stuff that kept the truth of our faith preserved and moving forward. Even though the church embraced the evil that was the Roman Empire, even though the church embraced cultural um, aspects of the world around them, and incorporated it into the, the church life, if you will, even in the midst of that, our faith was preserved. The more I study about the evolution of the today's Christian church, the more I'm amazed that we have what we have. Because I look at the first century, and I still look at it, wistfully because to me it was pure um they fellowshiped they met day to day went from house to house um there's a there's a simplicity that i long for that in many ways i don't see in our churches today there's a uh, 
harmony among the believers that I long for, that I see missing to a large degree today. But at the same time, no matter what form the church has taken over the centuries, at its core, there have been good people, godly people, godly men, godly women, who have preserved the truth and the scriptures, who have provided us with the foundation we have that today the truth can still be found. The church today looks almost nothing like the first century church. And that's going to happen to any organization. I get that. But in my studying of church history recently, I'm walking away thinking, how in the world did we ever survive? Only God. Thanks be to God, through Christ Jesus our Lord, as Paul would say. So in this wrap-up Saturday, I just want to rejoice that I have access to the truth of the ages, that the scripture, which I have been using for my devotional since July, is so available to me and that there's so much information for me to research the history and the culture and the wonder of those times. I rejoice in the fact that I can read the words of the Torah, the Pentateuch, and read the history and the story of God interacting with man. I rejoice that I can read with, with certainty historical documents that tell me of the birth and the life of a Messiah who came to restore fellowship between me and my God. I rejoice in the fact that there is a God who cares, a God who knows, a God who sees, and a God who is ready and available to all who would ask. I'm grateful for a God who chose me from the beginning of time. I'm grateful for the God who saw fit to put me in a church service being led by a black full gospel choir and preacher who opened the doors of my heart to see the truth. And what's the truth? Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. That God so loved me, he gave his only begotten son that if I would believe in him, I'd have eternal life. I'm grateful for a God who created all of this and a God who has guided the truth through the absolute, deter through the absolute determination of the human race to destroy it. 
And here we are over two thousand, almost 2000 years later. And the truth is still here. And the truth is still being proclaimed. Yes, the structure and the form of our churches may be faulty. Yes, there are people within the church who claim the name of Christianity as their own, who claim the authority of the church as their own, that are destructive and evil, who use the body of Christ for their own evil designs to inflict unparalleled horror on other people. And yet within this, there are still people who love God with all their heart, soul, and mind and who still truly do love their neighbors as themselves. I think my faith has been even more strongly enforced and reinforced as I look in wonder at the centuries of attack on the church by the enemy of our souls and how here we are almost 2,000 years later and we can have this discussion. Man, it's amazing. Well, on Monday, we get back at, let's see, let me find out, when do we get back? What do we get back to? I think we're going to go to Acts chapter 13. We're going to finish up Paul's first missionary journey. And uh, I'm looking forward to this. I'm really, really, really looking forward to this. This this particular book of the Bible, Acts, is raising more questions than answers for me. But that's a good thing. I like questions. Because I like finding answers. So... With that little meandering, wobbly little uh, walk through my wrap-up Saturday, I'm going to kick on out of here. I look forward to seeing you on Monday. Here's my coffee. I'm Paige. Have a great day. Bye-bye.